Chapter 8 of The Star Chamber, An Historical Romance, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, Volume 1, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter 8 of Lupo Vulp, Captain Blutter, Clement Lanier, and Sir Giles's Other Myrmidons. Close behind Sir Giles, and a little in advance of the rest of the Myrmidons, stood Lupo Vulp, the Scrivener. Lupo Vulp was the confidential adviser of our two extortioners, to whom they referred all their nefarious projects. He it was who prepared their bonds and contracts, and placed out their ill-gotten gains at exorbitant usance. Lupo Vulp was in all respects worthy of his employers, being just as wily and unscrupulous as they were, while at the same time he was rather better versed in legal tricks and stratagems, so that he could give them apt counsel in any emergency. A countenance more replete with cunning and knavery than that of Lupo Volpe it would be difficult to discover. A sardonic smile hovered perpetually about his mouth, which was garnished with ranges of the keenest and whitest teeth. His features were sharp, his eyes small, set wide apart, of a light gray color, and with all the slyness of a fox lurking within their furtive glances. Indeed, his general resemblance to that astute animal must have struck a physiognomist. His head was shaped like that of a fox, and his hair and beard were of a reddish tawny hue. His manner was stealthy, cowering, suspicious, as if he feared a blow from every hand. Yet Lupo Volp could show his teeth and snap on occasions. He was attired in a close-fitting doublet of russety brown, round yellow hose, and long stockings of the same hue. A short brown mantle and a fox-skin cap completed his costume. The leader of the troop was Captain Blutter, a huge Alsatian bully with fiercely twisted mustachios and fiery red beard cut like a spade. He wore a steeple-crowned hat with a brooch in it, a buff jerkin and boots, and a sword and buckler dangled from his waist. Besides these, he had a couple of petronels stuck in his girdle. The captain drank like a fish and swaggered and swore like twenty troopers. The rear of the band was formed by the tipstaves, stout fellows with hooks at the end of their poles, intended to capture a fugitive, or hale him along when caught. With these were some others armed with brown bills. No uniformity prevailed in the accoutrements of the party, each man arraying himself as he listed. Some wore old leather jerkins and steel skirts, some piscot doublets of Elizabeth's time, and trunk hose that had covered many a limb besides their own, others slops and galligaskins, while the poorer sort were robed in rusty gowns of tuft mikado or taffeta, once guarded with velvet or lined with skins, but now tattered and threadbare. Their caps and bonnets were as varied as their apparel, some being high-crowned, some trencher-shaped, and some few wide in the leaf and looped at the side. Moreover, there was every variety of villainous aspect, the savage scowl of the desperado, the cunning leer of the trickster, and the sordid look of the mean knave. Several of them betrayed by the marks of infamy branded on their faces, or by the loss of ears that they had passed through the hands of the public executioner. Amongst these there was one with a visage more frightfully mutilated than those of his comrades, the nose having been slit, and subsequently sewed together again, but so clumsily that the severed parts had only imperfectly united, communicating a strange, distorted, and forbidding look to the physiognomy. Clement Lanier, the owner of this gashed and ghastly face, who was also reft of his ears and branded on the cheek, had suffered infamy and degradation owing to the license he had given his tongue in respect to the star chamber. 
prosecuted in that court by Sir Giles Mompesson, as a notorious libeller and scandaler of the judges and first personages of the realm, he was found guilty and sentenced accordingly. The court showed little leniency to such offenders, but it was a matter of grace that his clamorous tongue was not torn out likewise, in addition to the punishment actually inflicted. A heavy fine and imprisonment accompanied the corporal penalties. Thus utterly ruined and degraded, and a mark for the finger of scorn to point at, Clement Lanier, whose prospects had once been fair enough, as his features had been prepossessing, became soured and malevolent, embittered against the world, and at war with society. He turned promoter, or, in modern parlance, informer, lodging complaints, seeking out causes for prosecutions, and bringing people into trouble in order to obtain part of the forfeits they incurred for his pains. Strange to say, he attached himself to Sir Giles Mompesson, the cause of all his misfortunes, and became one of the most active and useful of his followers. It was thought no good could come of this alliance, and that the promoter only bided his time to turn upon his master, against whom it was only natural he should nourish secret vengeance. But if it were so, Sir Giles seemed to entertain no apprehensions of him, probably thinking he could crush him whenever he pleased. Either way, the event was long deferred. Clement Lanier, to all appearance, continued to serve his master zealously and well, and Sir Giles gave no sign whatever of distrust, but, on the contrary, treated him with increased confidence. The promoter was attired wholly in black. Cloak, cap, doublet, and hose were of sable. And as, owing to the emoluments springing from his vile calling, his means were far greater than those of his comrades, so his habiliments were better. When wrapped in his mantle, with his mutilated countenance covered with a mask which he generally wore, the informer might have passed for a cavalier. So tall and well-formed was his figure, and so bold his deportment. The dangerous service he was employed upon, which exposed him to insult and injury, required him to be well-armed, and he took care to be so. Two or three of Sir Giles Mervyn's, having been selected for particular description, the designations of some others must suffice, such as Staring Hugh, a rascal of unmatched effrontery, the Jib Cat and Cutting Dick, dissolute rogues from the Pick Thatch in Turnbull Street, near Clerkenwell, Old Tom Wooten, once a notorious harbourer of masterless men, at his house at Smart's Quay, but now a sheriff's officer, and perhaps it ought to be mentioned that there were some half-dozen swashbucklers and sharpers from Alsatia, under the command of Captain Blutter, who was held responsible for their good conduct. Such was Sir Giles's bodyguard. On his entrance, it may be remarked, the curtain in front of the raised table was more closely drawn, so as completely to conceal the guests, but their importance might be inferred from the serving-men, in rich liveries, standing before the traverse. Profound silence reigned throughout the assemblage. Having uncovered, as before mentioned, and made a formal reverence to the company, Sir Giles spoke as follows. "'I crave your pardon, worthy sirs,' he said, in a distinct and resolute voice, "'for this intrusion, and regret to be the means of marring your festivity. I came hither wholly unprepared to find such an assemblage.' Yet, though I would willingly have chosen a more fitting opportunity for my visit, and would postpone, if I could, to another occasion, the unpleasant duty I have to fulfill, the matter is urgent, and will not admit of delay. You will hold me excused, therefore, if I proceed with it, regardless of your presence. And I am well assured no let or interruption will be offered me, seeing I act with the royal license and authority, of which I am the unworthy representative. "'Truly, your conduct requires explanation,' Jocelyn Monchensey cried, in a mocking tone. "'If I had not been here in London, I should have judged, from your appearance, 
and that of your attendants, that a band of desperate marauders had broken in upon us, and that we must draw our swords to defend our lives and save the house from pillage. But after what you have said, I conclude you to be the sheriff, come with your followers to execute some writ of attachment, and therefore, however annoying the presence of such a functionary may be, however ill-timed may be your visit, and unmannerly your deportment, we are bound not to molest you. Provocation like this was rarely addressed to Sir Giles, and the choler occasioned by it was increased by the laughter and cheers of the company. Nevertheless, he constrained his anger, replying in a stern, scornful tone, I would not counsel you to molest me, young man. The mistake you have committed in regard to myself may be pardoned in one of your evident inexperience, who, fresh from the boorish society of the country, finds himself for the first time among well-bred gentlemen. Of all here present, you are probably the sole person ignorant that I am Sir Giles Mompasson, but it is scarcely likely that they should be aware, as I chance to be, that the clownish insolent who has dared to wag his tongue against me is the son of a star-chamber delinquent. End of chapter 8